it's valuable and it cannot be held by physical hands, it's probably worth holding on to. This is Immaterial Treasures. I'm your host, Dan Fee Parker. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Immaterial Treasures. I brought Alan Gilman on today because I heard uh, a very profound clip he shared with me a few weeks ago um, on the passage of Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to uh, sample a following of the clip that I heard um, just to get a bit of context of what Alan communicated. I thought it was really profound, so have a listen. This week's message is entitled, Formula for Change, and I'm reading from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This statement by the Hebrew prophet Micah is one of the most concise and balanced prescriptions for life and living. It is most instructive in times like these when we are faced with concerns over large-scale societal and systemic issues. When held in balance, these three directives equip us to effect positive change. Conversely, the neglect of any one of the three is potentially destructive. Neglect, not overemphasis, because keeping each in mind, even to a small extent, mitigates against the extremes that emerge when neglecting any one of the others. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It refers to the bringing about of what is right. The world is full of what needs to be righted. The Hebrew asa mishpat instructs us that this is the activity aspect of the triad. Making things right is something we need to purposely work at. To do justice demands being aware of injustice, devising practical strategies to confront it, and finding ways to make it last. That's a heavy task, especially since the forces of injustice are not passive, nor do they play fair. Once the concern for justice captures our hearts, it can blind us, however, to the other essentials of life. Thus, connecting it with the other two is brilliant. Too often, the purveyors of justice leave much damage in their wake, forgetting that while Scripture instructs us to do justice, it's not to overwhelm our affections. Therefore, at the very same time, we must also love kindness. The word for kindness here is chesed, which is far more than simply being nice. The biblical concept of chesed is steeped in committed relationship to God and to others. Depending on the context, chesed can mean covenant love or loyal love. It's the type of kindness often shown to a relative or a long-time friend, a generous heart towards someone because of the bonds of committed relationship. But God through Micah is not reminding us to simply show loyal love to family and friends. It's that the love normally reserved for those we hold dear is the love we are to extend to those we perceive as unjust. When adjoining to doing justice, chesed allows for needed change, while at the same time avoiding hurting people in the process. Making things right can be painful, but true committed love greatly reduces potential harm to individuals and communities. When focusing on what we think is right, it's far too easy to forget that on every side of every issue is a fellow human being. It's loyal love for God and others that helps us keep everyone's best interest in mind even when they wrong us. We might think that these first two are sufficient to balance each other. Too much justice and we unnecessarily hurt people. 
Too much kindness allows injustice to flourish. What more do we need? What we still need is the third directive, v'hatsneya lechet im elohecha, and to walk humbly with your God, which is a way to express the life that continually and personally relies on Him. Without that, what we have is what is termed principle-based living. Principle-based living can be appealing, but is deceptively misguided. Tragically, the Bible is often abused by treating it as an instruction manual. Passages are read in order to reduce them to moral lessons that we try to apply to contemporary situations. Because God is continually referenced, we don't realize when we disregard Him. God didn't inspire the Bible and then remove Himself from human affairs while He watches history unfold from afar. God doesn't expect us to figure out life on our own. How do we know whether or not our sense of urgency and allocation of resources match those of God's? The Bible provides us with life's foundations and general priorities, but not the specifics. Wisdom, the ability to implement scriptural truth, is not drawn from study and intelligence alone, no matter how well-informed we may be. Rather, it stems from a life that keeps in close step with Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King. Well, Alan, um, thank you for that clip that you sent me. I really appreciated that. And um, I wanted to ask, what was the motivation for starting Torah Bites before we get into the content of what you shared? I started Torah Bites back in the fall of 1997. It, it was a blog before there were blogs. And I was looking for a way to kind of express some of the things that were on my heart. And what I do is I comment on the weekly reading from the five books of Moses that's done in synagogues all over the world. Very common in, in the Jewish religious world to do something called Devar Torah, a word from the Torah, the Torah being the five books of Moses. Uh, and they're read through um, on a schedule every week. So I follow that annual schedule. And I do about a, you know, it's about a page, about five minutes to read every week. And I've been doing it for most, most of the weeks since November 97. Um, as it's developed through the years, uh, I see that what I, I think I'm providing for people is a holistic approach to the whole scripture. So most of the people that are following Torah Bites are Christian, Bible-believing type folks. And in the Christian world, there's a tendency to overly focus on the New Testament as if the, the Old Testament is like the, the old and done with Testament, even though there's a lot of references back and forth between the, these two parts, major parts of the, of the Bible. Right. Uh, but as many people do know, um, uh, the New Testament actually brings the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, to its, to its fullness in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. But to properly understand who Jesus is, to understand the, the New Testament, to understand Paul's writings and the other people, uh, the letters and the book of Acts and Revelation, all the New Testament, is you really need to have a strong Hebrew scripture background. And so what I'm doing by focusing on, on the book of Moses is I'm, I'm providing which what I believe is the you know, foundational aspect of all scripture in order to help people see how all scripture speaks to all of life. Right. That's great. And uh, I really appreciated this episode because I, I found it really relevant for our times. Um, I've been seeing the passage, Micah 6, 8, uh, everywhere on social media. Um, love, uh, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And it's been sort of the mantra for um, 
the social justice movement that's currently happening in our culture. And, and I think this is obviously for um, people who are uh, aligning themselves with a uh, Black Lives Matter movement that are Christian. They're, they're um, espousing or, you know, parading this verse. So, and they're not doing it wrongfully, but I, I, I found it really interesting the way you um, pretty much shed some light into the passage uh, highlighting the, just the essential, um, the, just the importance of having all these as the, the aspects of these verses of justice, mercy, and walking humbly with God work in such a unison way and not as parts. So I guess my first question I wanted to ask you, uh, and knowing you and having conversations with you, I realized that this question is just, it's simply, I'm asking it as a product of my own culture. And my culture has been heavily influenced by Greek, um, Greek thought. And um, the, the, uh, you think of Platonic um, ideas and philosophers of that time, everything is very like, um, there's, there's categories for everything. So my question is very, very Greek-oriented in the sense that I'm asking, what are some of the dangers of elevating one aspect of a virtuous act over another? So by that I mean, what in when I observe the culture and the things I'm hearing from different people, it seems as though some people are very heavy on, we need to do justice, we need to eradicate oppressive laws or free the oppressed and all those things. And it's right. And I'm like, yes, yes. And then there's um, another corner where people are like, well, these people who are very like heavy on bringing about justice aren't very merciful. They don't seem very gracious in their, you know, their request for justice. And they seem kind of mean. Um, and if you listen to that crowd, you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. Mercy needs to be kind of like, implemented within this um, uh, achievement of justice. And then there's another corner where people are saying, well, okay, well, I can't hear anything these people are saying because uh, all it's just, it seems like they're, they're uh, virtue signaling, they're, they're not humble, and it's hard for me to hear what they're saying because it's just wrapped up in some sort of like uh, arrogance. So I wanted you to kind of address that and what you kind of almost like bring out more of what you just shared in that um, Torah Byte clip. As I've grappled with, with scripture, I've been a believer uh, in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah since uh, 1976. So you can do the math. And I've been grappling with, with scripture ever since and grappling as a, as a Jewish person, for the most part in a non-Jewish environment. And I've encountered as, as I've gotten to know the Bible better, and I, and I don't. I think there's some positive aspects of my own upbringing that has helped me, or has allowed me to resonate with what I've come to see in the Scriptures as I call it an integrative spirituality, one that seeks to hold intention, and I. To be fair, I don't really think of it as tension. That complexity of what truth is as revealed in the Bible, the complexity of goodness, even the complexity of, of, of evil and wrong. Like life is not is not a, a 
straightforward, simplistic thing. And on top of that, somehow all of us, and I, I went to, to public school, and somehow we've all been trained in thinking about life in these very categorical ways. Mm. So it's only relatively more recently in life that I kind of scratched my head and wondered, why did we study history separately from geography, for example? We, we're comfortable as a culture, by and large, in North America and the Western world, in thinking about life in in categories where one category is very separate from another category. Right. And I'm no expert in Greek philosophy, but my understanding is that it stems from that, where truth is thought of in terms of of concepts. But the Bible doesn't reveal truth as concepts. The Bible reveals truth as story. And I don't be, mean by that fictional story. You, there's, there, you can have fictional story. You can have non-fictional story. But the technical term for that is narrative. Right. The, the Bible reveals its truth within a narrative context. We even have the Son of God comes to earth and he answers difficult theological, moral, ethical, political questions by with stories. Hmm. People resonate with stories, even even with all the Greek thinking. We love stories. We love movies with good stories. And, and, and we remember stories. And life, in a sense, is a story. And it deserves to be grappled with in a, in a story kind of context. And that's what we have in Scripture. Um, even, even things like the letters in the New Testament, um, we don't often know exactly what the issues are that the writer is addressing. But we could tell these addressing issues. And we often misunderstand what people like Paul were writing because we're not really grappling with the issues that he was addressing. We're trying to extrapolate principles um, from these real-life contexts in which he's writing. And I've discovered how when we do that, we actually miss the point of what he and others are are, are, are saying in writing. So then we end up with um, a, a statement in the prophet Micah uh, that you've quoted, um, that is, for us, it's very easy just to take this out of context. So it's such a good line about justice, kindness, and, and, and humility, and it reads well. But this is, is something that emerges from a way of looking at life that allows these three, we'll call them elements for now, um, to be spoken of together. And I like to talk about how the Bible deals with conflicting elements in a very balanced way. But right. that balance is not the, the way we often think of, of balance. Um, and many people, when they think of trying to be balanced, they, they picture a tight rope walk or tight with their, that pole, trying not to tip to the left, not tip to the right so it doesn't fall off. And he's walking this very, very fine line. And people talk about, well, never going to achieve a balance because they perceive balance as being that fine line. But biblical balance is actually emphasizing all the needed qualities or elements together. And so it's more like a balance of when you weigh um, uh, with weights on it to, to determine how much something weighs so you have the, the set weights and then you put the spices or whatever on the uh, on the other uh, whatever that thing is called uh, the tray 
right. then it balances Scale. because both sides are weighted in the exact same way. And that's how you attain balance. So we need sufficient justice and sufficient kindness and sufficient humility in our walk with God in order to fulfill, as it says in this verse, what's good and what the Lord requires. But instead, what tends to happen, and I, because of, partly because of this categorical way of, of how we live, is we'll hear people say, well, the reason why um, I, I feel good about overemphasizing justice, for example, is we've been too nice for too long, or they have had their way for too long. So it's time for us to have our way so we could strike a balance. But biblically, the solution to injustice is not to overbalance or overemphasize wrongs. It's to approach these situations, these terrible situations, these unjust situations with justice, loving kindness, and humility together. And that's always the solution. We always together. And the fact that other people have done wrong doesn't give us uh, uh, the right um, to try to balance out their wrong with other forms of wrong. We need to pursue what is right. We need to do it in a kind way that considers everybody um, in, in, in the way that, that God wants us to, all the while never being arrogant, all the while being humble. Right. Now, if so if someone's listening and they really take your uh, advice seriously and say, yeah, you know, I, I can internalize the fact that I need to be um, more humble um, and show more mercy. Um, now, well, they're, they're caught now in how do I ask for justice without, without it seeming like I'm overemphasizing justice for one person over another because um and to be specific for the black lives matter movement or even black folks that are becoming uh, more conscious and there's some that have been conscious of situations that have oppressed black communities and whatnot and they want to rectify those um those injustices and inequalities how do they go about that pursuing those things without it seeming like they're just focusing on black people I, as I observe that, I think they they need to do that, and it's going. They need to do that passionately and effectively, and and with with much focus and tactfully. But I think it will look to the outside observers as though they are pro black over, or they are not even pro black because pro black is not a, it's, it's not wrong, but more so that they are elevating one community's needs over another. Whereas that, that community has been ignored for so long. So it's like they're trying to help them to get to the place to kind of create an equitable society for everyone by focusing on the ones that have been disenfranchised the most. That's not to say that they would close their eyes to maybe an immediate neighbor or friend who may not be black that's poor. But their sole purpose is to help black communities stand on their feet and be equal under the law and under um, of what everybody in society has access to. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yep. Well, first of all, I need to be very careful not to 
think that I have the the right custom-made solution, even in knowing how to apply these principles found in this verse to the specific situation currently with regard to uh, to race in, in North America and other places. At this point, it's not for me. I don't think it's for me to say. What I think I can say, however, is going back to the scriptures, I think one of the ways that that Jesus, the Messiah, how he functions in the Bible is, I know for a lot of Christians, it's, it's all about he, his dying for our sin and rising from the dead, which is absolutely essential. Cannot, um, it should not in any way play that down. Mm-hmm. But he's also functioning as the model of how God wanted human beings to live. In the first chapter of John, um, there's that verse, um, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son, uh, he has made him known. And the word there is similar to the, the term exegesis. Jesus is the interpretation of God, which means he's also the interpretation of God's word. Mm-hmm. So contrary to what some Christians think that uh, the Old Testament was just very backward and all it was there for was to show people that they were sinners and all the rest, there's just so much of, God, of, of God's goodness and holiness and righteousness and justice and, and love, actually, contrary to what a lot of people think, revealed in the pages of what people call the Old Testament, sort of called the Hebrew Scriptures. So we have that, and fundamentally, all people have failed to live up to the standards and principles and, and, and quality of what God revealed in the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes on the, on the scene, and he does it. He doesn't just fulfill a list of do's and don'ts and sort of just simply does what nobody else is able to do, like, like that. he was the only sinless one. He just kind of fulfilled the requirements. It's far more than that. He brings color and contour and texture uh, to God's revelation in, in the scriptures. And we see in him how, you know, if God became a man, this is how to do it. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what he did. That's exactly who he is and what he did, right? So we could look at him and, you know, he's the only one that could wear this verse. He has told you a man what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Like he could have worn that on his chest as he demonstrated it. So that, that brings us to, well, how did he do it? And before I, I mentioned that, I don't know how many New Testament readers fully understand what kind of society uh, the Jewish people were living in, in in the first century in the land of Israel under Roman occupation. And it was horrible. We talk about systemic racism. Well, they endured a form of systemic racism. They right. also they had, there were many members of their society that were very well-meaning and, and trying to, to do good and live a good life. But they had people um, who um, were, well, the tax collectors, as you know, those were Jewish people working for Rome. They were hated by their own people. You had some good religious folks, contrary to somehow Christians uh, view the New Testament. But then you had others that were sold out to Rome themselves, especially the Sadducees, the, the priestly class, uh, were kept in power because of, of their uh, dealings with Rome. And so the, the common people suffered 
under um, uh, political oppression, religious oppression, as well as living in in a time of life where living was just hard. Um, they didn't have the comforts and conveniences that so many of us enjoy today, and they really suffered. Life was very, very hard for them. And then Jesus the Messiah shows up, and his primary mode of operation was teaching. He taught the truth. It bothered a lot of people, and it blessed a whole bunch of other people. Mm. His teaching was very, very subversive in that he was talking about the kingdom of God when the only kingdom you were really allowed to talk about in first century Israel was Caesar's kingdom. Right. And he emphasized among his people and in the hearing of Roman ears that there was only one king, and it was the God of Israel. Um, he also undermined the Jewish expectation that he was going to overthrow the Romans. Instead, he, he was going to do better. And it took them a long time to understand that he actually was going to overthrow Caesar's power by conquering death. And he spent all of his time teaching and doing good. And I know there's people, when they get, when they want to emphasize the justice side, they love going to the episode of Jesus overturning the, the tables in the, in the, with likely the court of the Gentiles in the temple in Jerusalem. And that does show us that he did have a, a bit of an activist side to him. A but, you bit? know, most of his <laughs> it seemed like it was a, of, it was a large portion because in that passage, uh, the, it says the disciples remembered. You know, the passage from Psalms where he says, "Zeal for your house will consume you." You know, yes, but the, but most you know most of his hard talk was actually to his own disciples. Yeah, he did a full survey. Yeah, he had some hard words for some Pharisees, but the amount of times he was exasperated at um, the the ones closest to him, like, where is your faith? How come you have such little faith? How long do I have to be with you? You know, why didn't you get this? You didn't understand this because your hearts were hard. And he was at them and at them and at them for their lack of trust in their father, God. And it was training them to trust God, do good. And, and the main way they were going to make a difference. Remember this when, in Matthew 16, it appears in the other Gospels as well, but in Matthew 16, he's asking his disciples who people say that he is, and they, they share some of the, the rumors, and then, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you're absolutely right. And then he starts to talk about him being betrayed and, and killed, he's going to rise again, and, and they mainly didn't understand it, but they're hearing that he's talking really negatively, that King Messiah was going to actually suffer and die. And Peter rebukes him. He says, no way, that can't, you know, no way that shouldn't happen. And he and basically says, you're now talking devil talk, Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says to him. Right. They're trying to convince the Messiah to resist submitting to the will of the Father and having to die on behalf of, of all of us. Trying to talk him out of it was actually from the pit of hell. But not only does he correct Peter, then he begins to say that you guys have to pick up your crosses and follow me. And I know a lot of people talk about picking up your crosses as just those things in life. They're just so difficult to bear. And I have my cross to bear. And my marriage is hard. And nobody understands me. And I'm fighting my addiction. And that's hard. And, but that's not what carrying your cross is. Carrying your cross is being willing to follow the will of God unto death. 
And we see how Jesus did it. He, it's not like he led an army to overthrow Rome and died, which other would-be messiahs tried. Mm-hmm. Instead, he gave himself over to misunderstanding, injustice, the system of his day, because that was the will of his father to do. And he was calling us to do the same thing. One of the hardest things to do is to continue to be kind and to continue to be loving when you're misunderstood and being abused. Yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to put some clarification. So am I, you said that uh, one of the ways Jesus overcame Rome was by dying. And then I you just recently said about giving ourselves over to injustice and mistreatment and all those things. And I, I just want to clarify, am I hearing you say that so for those of us, myself included, um, that I, I cry out for justice to be done, for inequalities to be corrected, and all these things that that there's no, not I just want clarification that there's no room for that because I'm to accept injustice because there's a greater kingdom that is overthrowing the current system, and this system that's overthrowing the current system is invisible and it's and it's heralded by Jesus, and he's coming to rectify his kingdom and establish it, and all systems that man has ever established will be demolished. And so I'm just to remain within whatever system I'm in and love people and be humble and be merciful. Is that what I'm hearing, or did I mis- misread yeah. so you? I, I think where it's necessary, which is that's a difficult discussion to have when we're dealing with particular things, and what is necessary. Jesus affected change. Yeah, and the reason, the reason why I'm asking is because of pro, uh, Proverbs, which talks about speaking for the oppressed, speaking yeah, for those so, who don't have a voice. You know, so you brought, so we, I brought it up. Yeah, I brought up the turning over the table in the temple. And right. as far as we know, what I've heard over and over again, what had happened was there was this need to, to buy animals for sacrifice. And people would come from different places. They actually would come from all over the Roman Empire. I think they'd have to exchange currency and all the kind of stuff that we would do today. And you got to do it somewhere. It seemed that the people doing this activity had more or less taken over the part of the temple of that day that was known as the court of the Gentiles. So this gets really fascinating, fascinating, because people want to point at this physically strong activist side of Jesus. But who is he standing up for in his society at that time? Because remember, um, in one of the Gospels, he's quoted as saying, my house shall be a house for all people. Mm-hmm. And so he was actually standing up for the people that his own people basically despised. So he wasn't, he didn't go beat up a bunch of Roman soldiers or even take on those despicable tax collectors, those, tur- those you know, turncoat, you know, other fellow Jews. He actually was standing up for the people that in in his social group, those are the people that his people look down upon. And part of the problem when we read the New Testament today is everybody wants to make Jesus theirs. But we need to read him in his context. He was a Jewish rabbi. And he was understood as a Jewish rabbi. And then, you know, at other times where he, you know, a centurion does an act of faith. He goes, never in Israel have I seen anyone have such faith. Like for him to say that among his peeps would have been absolutely scandalous. And the same thing, like, he, you know, standing up for the Gentiles like he was, you know, if we're supposed to follow his example, 
you know, I'll, I'll let you make the, uh, the, the right conclusion there. And then I was thinking, oh, another one. Uh, so later on, after he's risen and he's ascended to heaven, and the, the, his disciples are now boldly speaking about him, and I believe they, this is following where Peter, I think it's after Peter healed the lame man by the temple. And they get arrested by the religious authorities. And they're threatened and told that they'd be in big trouble if they continue talking about Jesus like, like they are. They pray one of my, what's become one of my favorite prayers in Acts chapter 4. Now give us boldness to speak your word and lay your hand to heal and do miraculous signs and wonders to glorify your holy servant Jesus. So what they pray for is the boldness to continue talking about Jesus as the rightful king, the king of the Jews, and the king of the whole world, which would tick off both their own people, especially their, the leaders of their own people, and the Roman authorities. Um, they weren't talking about fighting anybody. Proclaim that message, proclaim the truth, proclaim that reality. And they were asking for additional power to do more good, and a kind of good that would only get them into more trouble. Right. I've heard what you. Do we do with, so it's interesting because yeah. uh, you brought up the the aspect of Jesus driving out the money changers in the temple and um, and how he was actually rebuking his own people in doing that act. But there's something. Sum up. Sum up. So, yeah. But there's something yeah. really quite um, clear in that passage is that what it says is that he says, you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. And I think that seems to at least the way the scriptures puts it forth seems to be the most important thing that this but remember is to be uh, dancy one thing is really important he was talking to his own people yeah no and and that's that's true i'm not i'm not i never negated that and i agreed with you on that and that's a rebuke to his own people not to rome obviously rome wasn't there uh maybe they're protecting the temple but they weren't there to worship no and, no no okay so he was some of his own people had created a system that prevented non-Jews from worshiping God. Right. So he ends up rebuking his own people to give the despised class the freedom to worship God. Is it just that, or is it that there was profit being made in the house of God, where it was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer, so much that they were um, making it hard for other people to come in and come to the temple like they were they were making money and taking advantage of poor people regardless if they're jew or gentile and turn the house of god into a place of merchandise and not a place of a prayer the statement though that where he emphasizes my my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples and to emphasize that mm -hmm. clues us in to this theory that many have that where they were were in the court of the Gentiles, and they were taking up room so that non-Jews uh, couldn't access the temple ground. Right. And so, so I don't know if it's simply uh, an issue about the the money itself, and there are other there are other issues. They might have been charging exorbitant rates for exchange, um, sacrifices. And... Well, again, but. I guess my my question my question is this too, and you brought up the the disciples when they were told not to preach anymore. They says, you know, they they told the authorities that you know you're free to tell us what to do, but we must obey God, right? And right, but they didn't. But they they made no plan to beat them up. 
No, no, no. There was no. And, I'm not, and I'm not insinuating violence. There, nope. I don't yeah, think. No. I, and they, there's a whole all. The, but what they, their plan of what they were going to do, would actually in no way directly affect the oppressive system. What it would do would spread the goodness of God. That is oppressing the system because the system of of the day and even our day doesn't spread the goodness of God. So that is an assault on the society. But it's it's done, and I think I guess what I'm trying to get at is is Jesus's method of assaulting systems today is it comes through the back door. He turns his kingdom overturns the powers of the day by they don't they didn't use violence, but they kept on preaching. They kept on yeah. preaching, and then people got saved. And then when people got saved, there was a, a, a sort of a, a revival of people caring for each other's needs, not being dependent yep. on a state. And, and taking care of each other and all those things that is that is subversive to the, the the systems of the day because now these people are going around spreading saying that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is king and that Caesar's not king uh, and in fact they're actually creating a colony within the society that's actually threatening to what has been established in the sense that they don't need Caesar they're taking care of each other you know, they're not dependent, you know, and, and I think what I'm, I'm getting at is that... Um, I'm not sure if they had, I'm not sure if there was a welfare state back in those days. But they, there's the statement in Acts that said uh, they had everything in common. So the rich... Oh, no, the, that... It's, it's not, yeah, 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 I'm not saying about Rome, Rome had a welfare state, but in a sense that, like, there was, there was uh, the burden of um, caring for each other. God had birthed that within, you know... The establishment of the church, uh, Jew and Gentile together. Yep. So by by changing people's hearts, they began to live a different type of life. Yes, but I'm very careful with that because there's a lot of people who would say that their heart is changed, and I may be indicting myself within this, yet there's no actual active or, or physical manifestation of that change. So when we if we get too spiritual about that's called change, being a hypocrite. That's well, a hypocrite. Well, but okay, you, we can call that. But there's a lot of people within the church who would say they're Christians, but have no desire to help the poor, to care for the poor. In fact, we'll even call that social gospel and and rebuke people for being overly concerned for the poor, for the oppressed, and those who are disenfranchised. And you, you see what I'm saying? Because they'll say that well, all, every what people need to do is to become saved so that they can have um, so they can have responsibility and and do things on their own and not take handouts and all those things. That's that's kind of like the mentality that buttress that attitude of not going out to care for those who are poor, who are disenfranchised, who don't have the same opportunities you do, but you can create opportunities for them. Yeah. So that's well, that's again, I guess that's so, what I'm getting. We're back. Okay. So I'm the, getting but at. the thing, but the point is, I think the point is, if we're looking at the model of scripture that the remedy is teaching and you could add to that being an example that's how they did it right and yeah and it was and it was complete and interestingly so we have we're talking about the the sharing so we have the um fascinating statement we there's there's a move where all these people are selling their property and they're bringing it to the the community leadership and they're sharing it out with people and there's nobody needy and it's it's this wonderful model of, of equality, economic equality. And then we have that story of Ananias and Sapphira. Right. So there's this one married couple that you know the story where they, they 
give the impression that they sold all of their property and now put the the income at the disposal of, of the community leadership. But they were lying. Uh, they were giving an impression that they were doing what everybody else was doing or whatever their motive was. And it's a, it's, it's a sorry tale because God actually bumps both of them off. Uh, I bump, you mean he kills them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know I needed to translate that. But anyway, <laughs> I'm speaking in those graphic terms because I want people to get it. So anyway, it's a, quite a tragic tale, but there's this, uh, uh, one of the things that, that Peter says to one of them, at least, basically, you could have done whatever you wanted with that money. And a lot of people miss that part because you could see what happens in any kind of peer group. There's a movement afoot. Everybody's being generous. And so you feel like you need to um, show that you're doing the same thing, but your heart's not really into it. So you lie a little bit. Uh, you kind of don't actually say maybe that you're giving all the money, but you're making it look like you're giving all the money just to look good. And, and really you're being a phony, but the, the remedy from Peter wasn't, Hey, you guys, you should have forked over all that dough. Do I have to, do I have to translate that too? Um, you, Hey guys, you have to fork or, or, you know, God, God's going to get you because, because you didn't fork over all that dough. The only thing that they did wrong was that they, gave a wrong impression. They could have sold the stuff. They could have given a quarter. They could have given a half. They could have given none. If that's what they believed that God was calling them to do, there was no actual pressure on them to conform, but they were acting like there was. And so it's what ends up happening whenever a, any kind of movement takes a foot, whether it's, you know, whatever the goal of that movement is, there's such pressure upon people to conform to the, ideology of that particular group but micah 6 8 as well as the the model of jesus and his followers doesn't allow for ideology it doesn't force anything upon anybody it, it forces the individual to to deal with the pain of how do i do right but still love my name in fact love my enemy is what jesus called how do how do i try to bring about good change while loving people and doing it in a humble way where I'm not a know-it-all. And I, I'm actually humbly just bringing my little piece of the puzzle that I could bring to do the little difference or big difference that I can do without thinking that I'm the one called to, you know, tear the walls of Jericho down with my own bare hands. Like it, that doesn't work. And it doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. We need to be walking as God is leading us, doing not only his will, but his will in his way. Earlier you said the hypocrisy when I said uh, there's people who are Christians and then they don't have acts that follow, you know, what, like, the, the reflect the new birth. But then you said the hypocrisy in Ananias Sapphira, um, Sapphira was that they pretended to give something that um, they didn't actually give. And God, you know, judged them for that. And I yeah. think that's where hypocrisy really comes out. And I think so. Here's the 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 very it's the very muddied water of this conversation. This specific aspect is that yes, God doesn't like compulsive giving. In fact, if you if you feel like your tithe for the week should go to some program that you believe in, I think you're free to do that. I mean that I mean you should be giving to a local church, but again, not uh, it's you should be giving 
freely and cheerfully to the Lord and to his work to some capacity. But I think what happens is that there's this overemphasis on the fact that don't tell me what to do with my money, right? Or don't tell me to give. And then nobody says anything and nobody gives, <laughs> do you know? And, and it's like, okay, well, if we are... If we, we, if we have the new birth and God lives within us and God calls himself, you know, um, the father to the fatherless, he's, he's defender, uh, he's the husband to the widow and he's the defender of orphans, then does he not use his people to care for these individuals? And does God not help? Is God not in the very places where the oppressed are taking advantage, are being taken advantage of? You know, does he not care for them? So it's like, we can get into the rhetoric of like, okay, let's not put any pressure on people to comply like to put some compulsive, you know, pressure on them to give, which I agree. I totally agree. But we should also hold people to accountability. Okay, well, if you are a Christian, like James, the book of James, you know, if you say you have faith, let me see it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, let, let, um, me, let me see it. Yep. Like, you, like, you can't go through your whole life never giving and saying that, you know, why well, I just never felt like God led me to. Are you kidding me? Like, do, do you know what right. I mean? Like, because then it opens that door. I think a lot of it comes down, I've been emphasizing this, that, that the tool God's given us to affect change, um, we claim to be his people. The main tool we've been given is teaching. We don't teach enough. We don't teach the whole Bible enough. I shared at the beginning my burden that people could learn that all scripture uh, is for all of life. And I'm not saying that every Bible verse to anybody at any time the scripture applies to everybody i'm not saying that but we need a far more holistic approach to scripture to help people live in a in a complicated world and so people need to be lovingly and patiently and humbly taught the scriptures and they need teachers too that are going to be good examples of the things that they're teaching and we don't get it right so even you know apologizing and admitting when we've done wrong, which that's also scriptural. We need to teach people that we're going to blow it and, and what to do, how to confess our sins to one another, be honest about our lives and, and some of these things. So we need to be teaching people the truth. What, what I've often seen, though, is, and I've had the privilege of being part of all sorts of different Christian communities um, across Canada, and, it's, and I've been, me and my family have been enriched by that, but we've seen a lot of, of stuff that's like kind of raw, raw group think um, where we get involved in some sort of movement and then everybody needs to get on board. And, and uh, you know, we're the ones that are doing the will of God and the people that are other people, they're just not with it. And, and I find that so dangerous. It's, it's kind of easier to do um, to kind of put God in a box, say this is what he wants from everybody and everybody's got to do it. And it seems a lot of people find that appealing. What they don't find appealing is encouraging them to hear God, to study the scriptures, to, to live out their gifts and talents according to his will, according to their where they are in life at that time. Um, and, you know, we, we so much talk about not judging people. And I, I, that's another whole thing that I think we get really screwed up. But we kind of insist that everybody's got to do it like we do it. And if they're not doing it like we're doing it, then they're out of it. And that's just not the, the, the spirit of, of Scripture and, and how he's encouraging people to live out their calling in life. So I want to I uh, affirm the point you made about teaching is one of the primary ways that God has given us to, um, to guide us, 
And uh, I think it's also emphasized in Acts where the apostles, you know, they taught the word and there was the, 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 the teaching was on the shoulders of the apostles to teach and they mobilized people to get other things done, feeding the poor, um, taking care of disputes between people. Um, now, I think within our society, like the current Christian world, we are fattened with teaching. I mean, I mean and, and I well, think- As you were saying that though, yep, I, 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 sh- I, should, I should clarify, I'm really sorry. We're back again at this categorization thing. So in my mind, I don't make any distinction between good teaching and good doing. Right. And that's where and I so wanted I to get to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, the, <laughs> and I actually believe that a lot of not doing is because of bad teaching. Because if you're not teaching that the teaching leads to doing, then what are you actually teaching? Mm. And, you know, some people, so, you know, we could talk about stuff. But if then people aren't motivated to move their feet and, and actually do something about it, then what in the world was taught to them? You know, I had a conversation with somebody recently about end times uh, matters. And one of, the, one of the problems, in my opinion, about a lot of the in teaching that, about end times is that it actually doesn't do anything. You're telling people, Jesus the Messiah is coming back soon to judge the righteous and the wicked and you need to repent, that is teaching that leads to doing. Mm. We're just talking about schedules of events and, and all sorts of speculations about what nation's going to rise up against what nation, who's going to attack whom, doesn't do anything for people. just makes them a little excited, and then they can go <laughs> back and do the other stuff. Right. And there's theological arguments. So we could discuss uh, free will versus uh, predestination for the rest of our lives, and never learn to lo- love our wives and kids any better. So like, we need to ask the question. I think some of those theological discussions are important. But if they don't somehow force the rubber to hit the road at some point, maybe we should question the value of, of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I think at least some of the circles I run into, there's a fear of doing too much because then they think you are getting into the realm of social gospel. Yeah, the social gospel is a whole other problem because what was happening in, that, in those days is they were they began to reduce the um, social implications of Jesus' teaching um, to simply to, like societal activities and were forsaking some of the core well, other elements about relating to God and having a, a right relationship with God and 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 knowing Him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then what we end up having as a reaction to the social gospel is we have another form of disintegrated spirituality that so emphasizes personal relationship with God that we don't see that to have a right relationship with God is to live out Micah 6, 8. Right. Because remember, this, it's all in this, in, in this one verse. We're supposed to walk humbly with our God. That's not just an attitude of humility. That's, a, that's an attitude that's connected to a personal relationship with God himself, which is only possible by knowing Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we have to retain that while working to effect rightness in the world, that's justice, while not harming people in the process, but instead being kind to friends and enemies alike. And that could, and that could only be sustained with being full of the Holy Spirit. 
by knowing God personally through Jesus. Right. It all has to go together. And and I know for some people it kind of drives them crazy because if they're if our their minds are splintered into categories, you know, the social aspects are disconnected from the personal relationship with God aspect, then they kind of get a migraine as they're trying to keep that impossible balance that I referred to earlier. But when you understand that they all work together, then maybe we could relax a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And, and also, thankfully, God's not calling all of us to do everything. We need to teach people to, to discern what's calling God, you know, what is God calling you to do? And my wife, we, so I, I said we had a big family. So we've, we've raised 10 children and they're almost all adults now. We, you know, our youngest one is turning 17. So my wife has changed a lot of diapers. We never have done the math, but it's some astronomical number. <laughs> and she loves spending time with the Lord. She loves studying his word. And she had a crisis during, during some diaper time we were in about the amount of time she was spending, you know, feeding, the, nursing the children and changing diapers and all this. And then God spoke to her. And she wasn't somebody, and still isn't somebody that, that talks in that way readily, but God uh, showed her that changing diapers was her worship because she was doing it in obedience to him. And there's that famous book, um, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, which I've never read, but he, my understanding, he learned a similar, um, he, he was in the monastery um, healing potatoes. Right. And that was the job that he understood God had given him to do. And so rightfully, that's Romans 12, by the mercies of God and so on, give your life, uh, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a holistic statement that everything we do is a sacrifice to God. You know, it's all spiritual, it's all physical, it's all real, but it's going to look differently for the the mom of twins, which we never had twins, but you know, the mom of, of twins and maybe two other toddler kind of things and the kind of life she has as opposed to the bank president, as opposed to the, the person who came to the Lord in the prison, as opposed to the university professor, or, you know, some guy who delivers, you know, mats to, and gets mats clean. He has a whole other responsibility. You know, you have the, the, the family like mine, and then you have the single guy, uh, maybe, or maybe a single guy, no kids, his wife just died. You know, what does God um, want him to do? It's going to be different from all the others. Sorry that I'm rattling on, but it, it, it's going to be different for um, everyone. Has like a different good work that God would call them yeah, into, we, but it, it's still centered on Micah six eight to do to love mercy. Yeah, and, but to it's going to look. But we have. To, I don't think we can emphasize enough. It's going to look different for everybody. So, so that's why whether it's a social program or a a, a Christian uh, church thing, every time I hear this sort of everybody's going to be got to be on board or else you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing that makes me nervous what exactly about everybody has to be on board what, if there is a if there's a um, a cry from the community the body the church saying that everybody needs to stand against such and such because the bible says it's wrong is that wrong for them to say that or is it that is this the ones that we're uncomfortable with that we say, whoa, 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 you can't say everybody has to be on board because I'm uncomfortable with that. Because technically every Christian well, what is on board? Be, every every Christian technically should be pro life. Right? Okay, so that's a good one. I think right? that's a good one. 
Uh, okay, so, and then also okay, every Christian should be against that. racism. Okay, I can address that. But uh, no, I, I, I know that I one know, I can address. That one's easy, but I, <laughs> I, I want the other one too. I don't. I just because it's so easy for most Christians to just validate that, but then they don't want to talk about racial equality. You know, and I think, and I think, um, I think I, it's right for for people to say every Christian should be actively against racism. Absolutely. So I, okay, a statement like that, I would agree. You know, you know, I've talked before. The race construct itself, I believe, isn't biblical. We are one humanity, and so what? So the one of the problems with the just making statements. So, so okay, so if I said. Everybody should be pro-life. Okay, that makes sense to me. But that's not going to make sense to a lot of people. They're going to want to know what I mean by that. Because at some point, the rubber needs to meet the road. So that's where I need to be careful. So I've had some of my, my kids have been very involved in pro-life work. Does everybody need to be involved in pro-life work? And then if I say, well, yeah, but everybody needs to be pro-life, we don't really have time, but we should define what that really means. And then what does it imply for how people live? So we, and you know, so it's easy to, to do something with my Facebook profile because everybody's doing it. And, you know, the recent one with Black Lives Matter is, is, a, is one of those. But since I've been on Facebook many years, there's been many other ones. Yeah, and People, you know, you know there's a- I agree with that. I think it's unfortunate because it does minimize it to another just trend, which sometimes trends come and go, and they're not... Okay, so where I think it counts, so here in Ottawa, there's a, a network of leaders, uh, and there's an organization. I won't just get into it all, because it's, um, it's, it's what we're doing here. It's what some people are doing here. So we finally had a Zoom call last week where... Some leaders, you tell me what the best terminology is, but I'll say leaders of color shared their perspective about systemic racism and about there was about 100 of us on the call, all various different kinds of Christian leaders listening. And it's supposed to be step one. I'm looking forward to what, you know, step 32 is going to look like because this has to go on actually forever because we need to learn how to really be brothers together. Right. But are these these uh, these couple of brothers and a sister, uh, they've never really been heard on this topic before. They're finally getting to talk about it. Step one. And another situation is somebody in my own family was concerned about some friends of ours who are from the Caribbean. And some of the things they saw on Facebook and some of that, I'm, I'm trying to be discreet in how I'm sharing it. And. So this family member was concerned and made time to go and spend time with with a mom and a daughter to talk about those issues and to hear their perspective, what they want to say. And, and, and I know the family member was concerned that there might have been injustices and wanted to do what she could to help them as best she could with those injustices. Right. But started with sitting down and talking. Mm-hmm. Now, what ends up happening is I am sure there are people that are kind of feeling they need to go do that sort of thing because they're going to feel guilty if they don't. And they're going to do it just to satisfy that feeling and so they could tell their friends that they did it. Mm. And I, I don't, I think 
if they should do it, we should encourage them to. But they're answerable to God. They're not answerable to you and me. They're not answerable to you know, even the way we're to submit to church leadership. I think church leadership has very careful how they try to run people's lives. Mm. They should be helping people to, to walk in the things that God's called them to. Because we want to avoid as best we can to create an Ananias and Sapphira story. Right. We don't know all the details that led them to believe and feel pressured that they had to put on a show for everybody to see. And, and right. part of what I've been trying to say is, as leaders and friends even, we, ha- we have to stop putting on that kind of peer pressure on people. We should be encouraging people to obey God, which of course includes some of these issues, especially, you know, when I hear a brother in the Lord or even, you know, someone else, someone who's not a believer, talk disparagingly about another individual or a, a racial group, I hope. Um, I'll find the right time and the right words to say the right thing in the right way to that person. But to, I, you know, me myself, I feel responsible in that situation that if I've been privy to their venom, of course, that's kind of judgmental. I, you know, let's say it was venom, racial slurs. I, I know I will try my best to shed, you know, shed light on that subject and, and hopefully bring them to repentance and see change. Right. That's good. Um, there's, I just wanted you to provide us with some closing remarks on this specific question of just the disparity and polarization of calm conversations right now happening where uh, it's become the left and the right, even in the church with Christians where, you know, it's like we're separated by sides. And I wanted to have you kind of consider Joshua 5.13, where Joshua's before, the leader of God's army, and, and he asked the question, are you, for, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And I wanted you to uh, kind of address that question with regards to how we're dealing, how Christians, and even if people who are listening who aren't Christians, can deal with this aspect of uh, sides and what's more important that we're on the right or the left or that we're on God's side? If you could provide us with some remarks concerning that. Yeah. So you're referring to, you said it's Joshua 513. And it says when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And then this mysterious person responds. It says verse 14. And he said, no, which is really close to the Hebrew, the Hebrew word lo. He said, no, some translations say neither. And he said, no, but I'm the command, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And so in, in this situation, the people of Israel had been through a lot. They'd been led by Moses uh, for 40 years after God threw Moses and his brother Aaron, leading them out of Egypt, seeing all those signs and wonders, plagues and such. And then they, lived in the wilderness for 40 years and God was teaching them through their life circumstances, uh, through Moses and preparing them for taking the promised land. And so now they are, Joshua is the new leader. They're there. They're getting ready for their first major confrontation at Jericho, which is this major walled city. And he sees this person. And so then Joshua asks them a reasonable question. Are you for us or for our enemies? 
this translation uh, for our adversary, which he would want to know, are you with us or are you with them? And this mysterious figure who might have been God himself in human form saying, no, you're asking the wrong question. And basically God is saying, I'm for myself. Mm. And it's, it's so, and basically he's implying it's not about whether I, God, am with you. It's the question is, are you really with me? Right. It deals with the, the issue of when we believe we're the, people of, we're the people of God, it's very easy to think in terms of us and them, and that God's with us, he's not with you, buddy, sort of idea. You know, we've got God with us, so you better take notice. And that's not walking humbly with our God. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. Our relationship with God has been given to us as a gift, It's a gift that through Jesus, anybody can have. And um, we're to see other people through the eyes of of those that God wants to be part of his family. And so there's no real us and them. It's all about God and and his desire to see people come onto his side. Mm. So God is actually unbiased. I can see why people misunderstand, but we shouldn't. And we need to relate to God, to other believers, and to others with a whole lot of, of, of humility. And you, so you were asking about the polarization. So besides, there's this huge us and them thing going on. I, I see this as even far worse than what we encounter here in, in Joshua, because this takes us back to some of the, the discussion about categorization of thought and in, the whole thing makes me scratch my head but not only is it us and them but us is so um, defined as, as what it means to be in us and what it means to be a them so that if we fall if we disagree on item number 135 we're out right. we're not a true us right we must be a them or or I, I remember uh, on a radio show uh, here in Ottawa, I'm not picking on CBC, it was a CBC interview show, and, and this guy was being interviewed, and he said, I must, I must be on the left because I think everybody should be taken care of. You know, something like that. And I think, what? Like, what a, what a weird caricature. Like, a lot of the people on the so-called right, they, they believe that the government shouldn't take so as much money from them through taxation so that people can determine themselves how to apportion their funds and then imitate what the early believers were teaching, that we'd be free to give to the needy as we see fit instead of, instead of the government gathering all the money and apportioning it out as if the government knows better than the individuals do. And so, you know, we could have a, a discussion. Is the government a better steward of people's income to give to the more needy, or are the individuals more equipped to do it? That's a you whole. Know, I lean on the that's side a of, whole of, of debate in itself because some people think the government's there because greed exists. So some people will never give if they're not taxed. <laughs> and yeah, well, well, then do we take? Do we? Do we? Does the government get involved and force people? to reluctantly give up their goods and money to benefit other people. Like, so it was Robin Hood, right? Which is, again, getting into some of those details, 
know, I encountered, you know, a, a political person today explaining some of the, their viewpoints and they don't, they see some of the strength in the typical left wing approach. They see some of the strength in the typical right wing approach. And instead of fighting ideologies that are in these silos, we're supposed to be doing justice, loving kindness and walking humbly with our God. And how that's going to be lived out is going to be different from place to place, from situation to situation, from crisis to crisis, from different parts of the world, and, and so on. And, you know, how we do it today shouldn't be exactly like we're going to do it tomorrow. But if, if we equip people with knowledge of God, knowledge of his word, knowledge of his will, knowledge of his ways, encouraging them to live just, kind, and humble lives, then I think we're going to see so much more good done than deciding for them what they must do and how they must do it and basically coerce them or force them to do life the way we, whoever we are, the way we think they should do it. You know, God, very clearly in, in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, God's ways have been liberally given to people to live out according to their understanding in their hearts without coercion. And as you know, trying to say earlier, there's all certain ways that we tend to coerce. You know, there's the Nazi-esque type of co coercion. And then there's that really well-meaning kind of uh, everybody's doing it. And, you know, this, this subtle and not so subtle pressure to get on the bandwagon, whatever that bandwagon is. And I don't, I think that's highly destructive, whether it's for good or ill. Interesting. So I guess my last um, thing is like, how do we know that we're on God's side? Yeah. How do we know we're on God's side? I believe that the scriptures are his um, inspired and authoritative word and that every person can have a dynamic experiential knowledge of God. If we would be open to him and admit our, our faults, what the Bible calls sins, to him and ask him to come into our lives through the power of Jesus and submit to him, he will enable us to know that we really are his child. That will often be affirmed by other people as they see the, the fruit in our, our lives, but some of us are also misunderstood. But God is real. You know, there's a lot of people talk. We can actually know him deep, deep down in our hearts. That's good. Thank you, Alan, for that. Appreciate it a lot. Hopefully we'll have another conversation about other things. <laughs> My pleasure.